Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and this week our guest is Dr. Volker Pertis, the special representative of the UN Secretary General for Sudan and head of the United Nations Integrated Transition Assistance Mission in Sudan. From 2005 to 2020, Volker served as the Chief Executive Officer and Director of the German Institute for International and Security Affairs, known as SWP, where he currently holds the position of Senior Advisor. Prior to that, he served as Assistant Secretary General and then Senior Advisor to the Special Envoy of the Secretary General for Syria, including as chairperson of the International Syria Support Group Ceasefire Task Force, all on behalf of the United Nations. Here at El Monitor, we've covered Sudan until last fall as a good news story. The Biden administration had hoped Sudan, a pivotal country of 44 million in the Horn of Africa, was on a steady, if bumpy, road to elections and economic reform. Popular demonstrations against dictator and war criminal Omar al-Bashir had begun in December 2018, culminating in his removal and replacement by a civilian military transitional government in April 2019. A process toward civilian transition was codified in the Sudan Constitutional Declaration a few months later to prepare for elections in June 2023. The Juba Peace Agreement in October 2020 further laid out the country's planned transition to civilian rule. Also in the fall of 2020, the Trump administration helped engineer a paydown of Sudan's approximately $300 million debt for being a former state sponsor of terrorism from when Bashir gave safe haven to Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. In return, Sudan agreed to normalize ties with Israel as part of the Abraham Accords. World Bank President David Malpas said last March that the prospect of Sudan receiving debt relief under the heavily indebted Poor Countries Initiative was a breakthrough. Now Sudan's uncertain transition is in jeopardy after the military ousted civilian leaders in the Joint Civilian-Military Transition Council in a coup that took place on October 25th. Attempts to put the pieces back together on an interim government collapsed again last month. And since the military stepped in, Washington has suspended $700 million in economic assistance, and the World Bank has paused all disbursements to Sudan. Absent U.S. and international assistance, Sudan's economy could crack at increased risk from medium-intensity conflict in the World Bank matrix of economies affected by fragility and conflict. Sudan is primarily an agricultural economy and especially sensitive to climate variations and flooding. Extreme poverty, defined as per capita income below $1.90 per day, is high at 13.5% of the Sudanese population. The lower to middle income poverty benchmark of $3.20 a day would encompass 46% of Sudan's population. To help us understand what's happening in Sudan and the prospects for the political transition, I'm pleased to welcome our guest, Dr. Volker Pertis, 
the UN Secretary General Special Representative for Sudan about his work to help put that transition back on track. And that conversation begins now. Volker, welcome to On the Middle East. It's wonderful to have you join us today to talk about Sudan and the important mediation work that you and the UN are doing there. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for hosting. Let's start with the basics. Tell us about the UN Integrated Transition Assistance Mission in Sudan and your role in that process. Well, indeed, uh, UNITANS, as the acronym is, was set up after a United Nations Security Council resolution 2524 in 2020, which came on the demand of the Sudanese government to have a political mission here in Sudan, a UN political mission that would support the government and the people of Sudan throughout the transition period. This, this included the political transition with elements such as supporting constitution making, supporting an electoral process, but it also constituted peace talks with rebel movements and it, it included peace implementation, uh, knowing that it is relatively easy to agree on a peace agreement, but very, very difficult to build peace and implement peace. And finally, it included the task to mobilize or help the Sudan mobilize economic resources, uh, technical aid, financial aid, but as well as investment. So altogether, a uh, rather comprehensive mandate for a relatively small mission, uh, but all geared at supporting the transition path. I would say the, the triple transition path of Sudan from uh, dictatorship, military Islamist dictatorship, to civilian-led democratic government, from civil war to domestic peace, and from economic destruction to economic recovery. You became envoy in 2020, and the process since then has been complicated by the military takeover of the Transition Council in October 2021. How have these events impacted your role? Well, it has been a major impact. And uh, of course, the, the coup of uh, 25 October 2021 has a history that didn't come out of the blue. You, you must know that's a constitutional declaration, or you could say is a constitutional compromise of 2019, before UNITAS ever came in here, was an uneasy agreement between the military, which basically was the military security committee of the old regime, who had actively participated in the overthrow of that old regime, and the civilian forces who had triggered and maintains a revolution against the regime. So these two parties, in order to avoid, to avoid chaos, agreed on this constitutional document and, and the relationship was uh, uneasy from the beginning, um, even though the constitutional document was sort of uh, seen as a, as, a, as a platform to uh, have this conflict or the, uh, 
it's, it's a contentious state of relations between the military and the civilian element being civilized, as it were, or institutionalized. So tensions flared up again between the civilian and the military part um, in uh, the summer of 2021, and uh, then exploded as it were uh, in that coup of October uh, 25 last year. So were different issues at stake, the pace of reform, the question of which parties were dominating, the question of whether the military was letting the civilians doing their job, or the civilians should have a say, as a constitutional document actually stipulated, over security sector reform and a couple of other issues which uh, led to this uh, first heightened tension and that explosion with the military. Oh, and of course, uh, if you're here to, as we are, to support political transition towards civilian-led democratic government and a coup comes in your way, um, that impacts heavily on your mission. So rather than continuing with uh, really pragmatic work, let's say with the Ministry of Justice on setting up a constitutional commission or preparing the constitution making process, we suddenly found ourselves in a situation where I had to shuttle between military and civilian leaders, where we were calling for de-escalation, where we were calling for the release of prisoners, for the release actually also of the prime minister who was under house arrest. So in a way, the nature uh, of the mission changed, not because we uh, wanted to follow a different agenda, but because the circumstances changed. Let me ask a, a very direct question. Why did uh, General Burhan, the head of the military in within the Transition Council and his partners, interfere with this process and, and make this intervention or, or coup? Well, maybe you should have a podcast with him where he would answer this, this question to you. But there were, as I, as I said, there were conflicts. The military was complaining about the dominance of a particular group of parties uh, over the civilian part of the government and were complaining that these parties wanted to push them out. The civilians were doubting that the military was prepared to hand over the leadership of the so-called Sovereignty Council uh, to civilians at an agreed date and there were conflicts over the dead. Uh, civilians were doubting that the military was ever prepared to undertake serious security sector reform or give up its hold over large parts of the national economy. And, and a lot of these uh, tensions uh, sort of came to, uh, came to escalate uh, since August, September 2021 with uh, mutual recriminations of, of uh, undermining the transition uh, process. Now, as long as that was in a phase of uh, mutual accusations, uh, both sides to an extent had their points. Of course, then one party in a partnership or one partner to a partnership, that is a military, decided to oust the other partner from uh, government, uh, which is um, according to to my lexicon of international relations, which is a coup, 
uh, and the military coup since it was um, since it was brought on the way by the military with military force. Now, General Burhan has uh, said that the process is still on track for elections, uh, but a deal with former Prime Minister Hamdak fell apart last month, and opposition seems to be growing to Burhan's move and the process at this stage. Can elections still happen on time? Well, June 2023 is a date which, indeed, General Burhan set after his coup. He uh, actually said that the United Nations and his wife had told him that we need a minimum of a year and a half to help support credible elections in, in any country, basically, but particularly in a country which doesn't have an electoral law, which doesn't have an electoral commission, uh, which is lacking any census or at least uh, clear census data where millions of people aren't registered. So uh, elections cannot happen just from one month to the other. Uh, so he sets a date of, of July 2023. Um, some forces were skeptical that this was uh, a date that would leave enough time for preparation. And as time is moving forward, and we don't have the government here since October 2021, uh, we don't have a prime minister uh, to work with. Um, the preparation of these elections has also been uh, kicked down the road. And I, I doubt that the Sudanese will agree on July 2023 as a practical date. But dates are not sacrosanct in the first place. So according to the original constitutional document, which was amended after the agreement on the Juba Peace Agreement, uh, elections would have been held in December 2023 or January 2024 at the end of the so-called transition period, which probably remains a more realistic date. You just completed a month of intensive sessions there in Khartoum with an impressively diverse range of civil society groups. Uh, tell us about those talks you've been having and how does that fit in with your mediation process? Well, you call, could call it a facilitation process or some would call it a mediation process. What we saw is that, that after the coup, a couple of domestic initiatives by, by, by very good people, usually, to, to bridge the gap and to find a new consensus uh, actually didn't lead to bridging the gap and, and failed. And uh, this failure was pronounced, as it were, by the resignation of Prime Minister Hamdok. Uh, on 2nd of January. So uh, based on our mandate to support the political transition and uh, with encouragement of many Sudanese stakeholders, we said, let us help the Sudanese to start talking to one another again by facilitation, by facilitating um, conversations and consultations. And since many important Sudanese stakeholders were and are still refusing to speak to specific other stakeholders or sit at one table with them, we said, let's invite these groups individually to consultations with the United Nations, with us at least. And so over one month, exactly, 
we invited not only civil society groups, but yes, a broad range of civil society groups, uh, not only from the capital, but from all the, the governorates, all the regions of Khartoum and political parties and the military and the armed groups who had signed up to the Juba Peace Agreement uh, and the resistance committees who are organizing the protests in the street, invited them to, to come to us and told them what their visions are. Uh, and indeed, uh, we, we had uh, about 800 people coming to our premises. We had long meetings. We got a lot of interesting ideas on the table. And we are now in the phase of, of compiling a, a summary report uh, of these meetings uh, with the stakeholders and their ideas and their visions for a return to a credible and sustainable transition in Sudan. Tell us about the roles and your interaction with other countries and organizations seeking to assist the transition. And I'm thinking here specifically of the United States, Egypt, the UAE, the World Bank, African Union. How are the key parties working together? And do you see these complementary efforts as indeed complementary and helpful? Well, uh, there is, of course, a variety of, of interests among the international and among the regional community. But generally, we could say that we are working with all those you, you have mentioned in different formats. Uh, there is the Friends of Sudan group, which is mainly uh, a group of the donor countries plus some others. Uh, that includes, of course, the United States and the European Union and uh, uh, major Gulf states. Um, we have extended this group on the ground here to include the African Union and Egypt and EGAT uh, and uh, the international financial institutions, the World Bank and the IMF are our core members of these Friends of Sudan. Now, still different countries, different regional organizations, have different priorities. So sometimes it is more about finding out complementarities. But what we have seen since this process has facilitated uh, conversations and consultations started is that most of the donor countries, uh, most of the countries in the Security Council uh, and uh, the international financial institutions have come out very, very strongly in supporting this process and sometimes are supporting it on the sidelines, which means, of course, a common messaging about what has to be done, about the need to de-escalate, to get a conducive atmosphere for any talks, uh, also the next phase of talks, which you hopefully will be able to facilitate uh, in a couple of weeks. And also to, to think about how Sudan, after the suspension of eight, after the coup of 25 October, could nonetheless be helped to are not destabilized, to not fall into economic chaos. Tell us how your work is complicated by the civil conflict in Ethiopia, and there are border issues and indeed have been uh, military exchanges between Sudan and Ethiopia over aspects of the border. Well, this is true, and it has been with us since I started my here to implement my mandate here. Um, it is an issue. What is happening in Ethiopia is, of course, impacting on Sudan, but mainly through the impact of refugees from 
Tigray and uh, Sudan, a poor country itself, suddenly had to deal with another 50, 60,000 refugees coming, adding to the million or so of refugees it already hosts and see three million IDPs, internally displaced persons we are having here in the country. We must say that the Sudanese have been working very well here uh, with UNHCR and the international community to try to host these refugees. Uh, what has been disturbing uh, last year is that a number of originally unrelated conflicts actually played together and um, complicated one another. That is the civil conflict in Ethiopia, which you have mentioned. It is the GERD dam issue where Egypt particularly, but also Sudan are concerned about some unilateral moves on the part of the Ethiopian government and a bilateral border conflict between the Sudan and Ethiopia over the so-called Fashaka Triangle. Um, it hasn't impacted on our work so much, but it has made the situation for Sudan more complicated by adding another problem or another set of problems uh, on the many internal issues. Egypt depends on Sudan's support. Does that issue come into play as well? Not in the current uh, political discussions, but of course it is a part of the regional relations uh, and it has soared, as it were, contributed to the soaring of the bilateral relations with, uh, between Sudan and Ethiopia. Um, Sudan has traditionally um, has had a political position on these water issues, which which fits its its geographic middle position. I mean, it is uh, between it is between uh, Ethiopia and uh, and Egypt. It does see uh, the advantages of a dam project, which would regulate the flows of waters and hopefully uh, improve agricultural seasons and. Uh, cause less flooding uh, than the Sudanese now are experiencing every year. At the same time, they are concerned, uh, together with Egypt, that uh, Ethiopia could unilaterally, without uh, actually coordinating, regulate uh, the flow of waters uh, in a way that wouldn't fit the interests uh, of the downstream countries. Last question. Are you optimistic, pessimistic on, on Sudan? And what should we be watching for as a positive sign or benchmark of progress in facilitating the transition in Sudan so that it can be back on track? Um, look, I usually reject this question for pessimism and optimism, but, but if I was a pessimist, I, I wouldn't have taken this position. We need some positive spirit to, um, to accept the task of helping a country with a difficult history in a difficult neighborhood to um, go its self-chosen path of transition towards civilian democratic government. Um, if you're too skeptical, you would only see the difficulties and not the chances and the opportunities. And, and these opportunities are there. So what should you look out, look out for? 
Well, one short-term issue is whether um, we or others, or the Sudanese with our, our facilitation, would actually manage to, to get a dialogue process going, which could be direct or indirect dialogues, but whether Sudanese speak to one another in a Sudanese, Sudanese dialogue about the issues uh, that concern them, both in the short term and in the longer term. Um, I would look out for whether the Sudanese agree uh, among one another to some changes that, um, that relate to the position of the military in government. Now, of course, the military is basically the government, according to Schultz and the government, and the agreement on civilian government. And thirdly, I would like look out for whether the Sudanese will come together with one another in the next couple of months to speak about some bigger constitutional structural issues like uh, the inequality between different regions here, the age old discrimination of the peripheral areas and what that would mean for a constitution that is sustainable. Volker, this has been great as we were recounting before um, we started the podcast, we known each other for, I think, close to three decades when we met either in Syria or Jordan in the 90s. I've always admired your work at the SWP and on Syria uh, as, as both an academic and analyst and then at the United Nations. And now your important work here in Sudan, really. Thank you for joining us today on, on the Middle East. Well, thanks to you. We will return after this short break. Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department Correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell, I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let El Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to El Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. Thanks to our guests, Dr. Volker Pertis and our production team of Beowulf Rockland and Roosevelt Hine of Two Squared Media Productions. We will be back next week. And if you haven't done so, please sign up for all three of our podcasts at your favorite podcast platform. Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel, whose guest this month is Nobel Peace Prize winner Maria Reza, CEO of Rappler, the digital media website. And On Israel with Ben Caspit, whose guest this week is communications expert Anand Ben David. And Ben and Anand speak about the impact of the Pegasus scandal on Israeli democracy. And of course, this podcast on the Middle East, where Amber and Zaman will be here next week with another decision maker or thought leader from the region.
Thank you all for listening, and please keep up with all of the news and trends in the Middle East at lmonitor.com.